Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz here to talk with you about the paranormal as we are each and every Saturday night. And we'd like to say welcome to those of you who are joining us for the first time. I had a great time yesterday speaking with Phil, Phil Paleologos, uh, filling in for Ken Pittman yesterday afternoon. And, and we had about a half an hour segment where we talked about the paranormal and we discussed what it is that we do here. And we want to thank Phil for his support of the program. Phil, Ken, Pete, everybody here has been great supporters of what we do. And we're always happy when we get the chance to spread the spooky word to the daytime listeners because, you know, some of them might not stay up this late on a Saturday night and some of them might be a little too afraid to listen to a paranormal show. So uh, hopefully we've let you know that it's not all scary here. A lot of it's science. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. We're going to be talking about teaching the paranormal uh, with our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Teal. He is a professor at Ashland University uh, in Ohio, and we're going to talk with him about the course that he offered this past spring semester. We're going to talk with him and some of his students, find out not only what they learned and how they went about learning it, but what the reaction was from the academic community to the idea of taking a course that teaches the paranormal. I mean, here... In this neck of the woods, uh, in the south coast of Massachusetts, we're lucky enough to have a few uh, adult education centers where they offer classes for people that want to take, you know, recreational type courses. And there's Keith Johnson, uh, Keith Carl Sander Johnson, they teach a course. Uh, there's obviously the Capers Open Meetings every month uh, on Cape Cod. There's a lot of different places for people to learn about the paranormal here, but it's not within an accredited academic institution, and it certainly doesn't count for any credits. So uh, the idea, at least what I would like to see happen, would be to have an accredited university offer a degree in the paranormal, as they would any other science. Matt Moniz, you know, you're a scientist and a paranormal investigator. What do you think the chances are of that ever happening? Uh, pretty slim. Well, Duke University did have that, uh, yeah, that parapsychology department for a long time, but that didn't count uh, toward any kind of degree. Any any courses that you took through that were kind of just for your own benefit, right? Pre- pretty much. Uh, you could uh, same thing with the uh, one from JFK University. Yep, and that's where Lloyd Auerbach uh, yep. has his degree from, and, and I know he does some teaching there. I mean, basically, if you have the opportunity to learn about the paranormal in a college, no matter whether it be, uh, you know, like a campus group or anything like that, get involved with it. Because not only are you going to get together with other like-minded individuals that want to learn about this, but you have access to professors, doctors, PhDs, people on campus who can answer questions that may pop up in the course of learning about the paranormal. For example, you might want to discuss the possibilities of time travel, but you don't know anything about tachyons. Well, there's a professor at your university that can describe it to you and tell you, you know, what they're all about, theoretically. Theoretically. No, well, back 20 years ago when I was in school doing stuff, most schools 
allowed students to create their own groups to do this, you know. Sure. And they gave funds, you know, for the group to bring in speakers and such. That's what we did, you know, 20 years ago. But to have a university put a professor forward to actually teach it now, that that's very progressive. Well, it seems like Ashland University is a very progressive school. Let's uh, talk with Dr. Teal. He's on the line with us right now. And, Jeff, we're very excited to talk to you because you're basically doing what it is that we've all dreamed of doing, and that's being able to teach the concepts behind the paranormal uh, to the new generation. How did it come about that you decided to offer this as a course? Well, for me, it began with student inquiry. I had a student come into my office a couple of years ago and describe various kinds of uh, dream dream events that seem to predict the future. And uh, she asked me what she was supposed to do about that. And that was a very strange thing to occur <laughs> in one of my one of my classes. And uh, I went through the usual questions you would ask someone like that: make sure there's not any physical or mental disease, make sure she's getting enough sleep. Etc. And it all turned out that she seemed perfectly cogent, and uh, nevertheless, had this seemed to have this apparent track record of some kind of predictions. And then from then, it led from one student to another, again reporting different kinds of phenomena. And so that began to get me thinking. It pushed me outside the typical giggle factor that you run into uh, when you raise these kinds of questions. <clears throat> when I had serious students asking, describing phenomena sure. uh, that fit into the usual pattern. And then um, I started to notice patterns in the in the uh, experiences that were being reported, and so that naturally prompted my curiosity as a philosopher. So is that where your your doctorate is in philosophy? Correct. And so I'm assuming that you work out of you know the the humanities department more than the science department. Well, if by science you mean the empirical sciences, yes. Yes. But you have to remember the empirical sciences owe their origin to the sciences generally. And originally, um, natural science was called natural philosophy, and natural philosophy, of course, was an extension of philosophy itself. So the, Aristotle defines a science simply as any body of theoretical knowledge. <clears throat> that knowledge may be derived empirically by referring to our senses, but it may also not be derived empirically. For example, in mathematics, we know that two and two is four without checking to make sure that two apples and two apples makes four apples. Mm-hmm. Because we can talk about numbers and some quantities that exceed anything that we experience. So knowledge is not all derived from experience. Some of it may be derived from non-experiential sources. And Aristotle points that out. And so throughout history, we've talked about lots of different kinds of sciences. The science of beauty, uh, theology, study of God as a science. But the mode of the inquiry is different from the kind of empirical conditions you would put on what we now call empirical science. And unfortunately for us, uh, who are out in the field investigating, uh, the empirical sciences are the ones that we have to prove the most to. You know, as a, as a theory, the paranormal has become relatively accepted uh, amongst the population. Even people who don't want to discuss it will say, ah, I've had a few weird experiences, but trying to get that hard data is the problem. Uh, right. And- that's, that's exactly it. I asked my class. Fifty percent of them had some kind of an experience that they would in some way have to described as being paranormal. And that caused the rest of the class to look at those people and say, oh, my, we would never have predicted that. And it's, uh, it really changes your perspective when you, run in, when you run into the fact of just how many people 
uh, report these kinds of experiences. But that's exactly the problem, right? When you when you have re- reports, it's very difficult to go and investigate these and repeat the events. It's more like the study of history, where the events aren't repeatable. But at least in the study of history, you have artifacts. Most of the artifacts of the paranormal turn out to be people's reports. So it's much more difficult to talk about how you would construct a science of the paranormal. And then we've been trying to wrap our heads around it for, for quite a while, but... What, well, you... one, way, one way to begin might be just to realize that, you know, when we talk about the paranormal, we're talking about two classes of things. One, we're talking about phenomena, things that happen to people, and that's the data. <clears throat> now, the, the materialists who think that the only things that exist in the universe are physical objects are usually, they usually try to write the data off. So, well, obviously you didn't see that. It's much more likely that you're dreaming or that you're insane or that you were taking drugs or that something affected your mind. That's why you think you saw what you saw. But, in fact, it wasn't really there. But, of course, if we don't assume that, if we say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, multiple people saw the same thing. Are they all hallucinating? Are they all taking drugs? Probably not. So now we've got something that seems to fall into the class of a physical phenomena, or perhaps it's an emotional phenomena. Then the second class of objects in the paranormal is the question of causes. What is it that produces these phenomena? It may be, in many cases, they're physical objects. Uh, There may be all sorts of things in the physical world that we don't yet understand. And as we pursue the empirical sciences more, we'll come to explain and understand why it is that certain strange things happened, then we can understand them. But the problem, of course, is that there's other kinds of uh, phenomena in the paranormal that don't seem to fit very easily into that kind of categorization. And those are uh, the the, uh, experiences that seem intentional, such that you seem to be dealing with an agent or a person. Um, And that's, of course, where we run into this phenomena of ghosts or angelic visitations, or these types of things. And I, I think as science is willing to accept more and more out there theories, for example, quantum physics and, and multidimensional theory, as they're willing to accept that, we can kind of backdoor in some of these paranormal experiences because if there can be simultaneous universes happening all at once and there can be you know, glimpses and windows between them, at the very least, they might acknowledge the phenomena. They might not be willing to say, sure, you saw the ghost of your dead aunt, but they might say, you know, you did have an experience with a, a being, a, a entity, an entity that is not of this plane. Well, if it's a, it depends on uh, what we mean by the word plane there. If we're simply talking about an extraterrestrial being, a uh, being not from this physical Earth, or a being that's somehow related to our Earth, but you know, in a different, if you want to use the word dimension, um, at least we're still dealing with physical objects that are the causes. Mm-hmm. But some of the phys- some of the paranormal phenomena don't seem to be corporeal at all. And that's what's extremely interesting to compare the paranormal objects, paranormal causes, with traditional religious inquiry. Because the ancients certainly thought there was an entire class of beings that they called the gods and goddesses who could manifest themselves physically, but were not bound by the physical at all. And they called them so they were called spirits. The religious traditions have always referred to these beings, right? There's talk about the angel visiting the Virgin Mary. Moses is fighting the sorcerers in Egypt, and lo and behold, the sorcerers are able to replicate the first four miracles that Moses performs. He's rather surprised by that, right? Mm-hmm. And what's the implication? Well, the implication is the gods of Egypt aren't just sticks and stones, right? They're real beings, 
And at one point in the text, it's fascinating, the God of Israel says, I'm going to get me glory against the gods of Egypt. So <laughs> the battle really doesn't seem to be between Moses and the sorcerers. It's between the God of the Israel- Israelites and the uh, Egyptian deities. The point being, the assumption in the text is that they're all real things. So the idea that there's something between man and God, what the medieval philosophers called the great gap, um, is part of what motivates, uh, motivates the inquiry. It seems really strange that you have this sort of an infinite being at the top of it who's clearly incorporeal, and then you have all us nice little corporeal finite things. But then there's this huge gap of the finite incorporeal beings that might be not be bound by the physical at all. <clears throat> Every other level of human ex- of, of experience seems to be full of types of creatures, plants, animals, all different kinds of minerals. But then you've got this massive gap uh, as soon as you go above the human human experience, human person. And so it seems that it's obviously possible that something could be in there. And if you take the existence of God seriously, then you might move that possibility into the probability, because if God is at the top and you've got human beings down at the bottom, there's a massive gap in the middle. And the religious traditions have historically referred to those beings and thought that, thought to them, take them very seriously. I, I do. So there may be a convergence between some of what paranormal investigators are talking about, for example, ghosts or the demonic, and the kinds of experience that the religious traditions have been talking about, both pagan and more traditional Jewish and Christian. I, I do think that uh, even though you know the more clear-minded people of today might not admit it, there is that deeply ingrained sense of ego of, you know, we just can't believe that there, we're willing to accept that there is God, and you know maybe angels who are above us, but yeah. we can't accept that there might be a hierarchy even beyond us, and that there is a gap between us and God. We we want to think that we are the end all be all on this planet, and we we can't accept by our own ingrained ego the fact that there might be something greater than us. And I think that's a major factor that people need to overcome. It's you're right. There's there's two huge traditions in America that make discussing the paranormal very difficult. The one is the materialist bent within some of the empirical sciences. There's nothing about the empirical sciences that entails that everything has to be physical, not at all. Um, obviously, the empirical sciences are extraordinary tools for studying physical things, but it doesn't follow from that that everything that exists is physical. So if you attach the doctrine of materialism or physicalism, which is a philosophical doctrine, to the natural sciences, then obviously you immediately rule out as ridiculous any appeal to something that's not non-physical and non-material. So we're very familiar with that tradition. But the other tradition is the religious tradition, and that this is the irony, because you're absolutely right. There's a kind of God in me version of Christianity that says that the only thing that really needs to exist, the only thing that's necessary, is that God exists, and then there's us. And then you take the doctrine of the Incarnation, God becoming a man, and it seems to ratify the idea that, see, it's human beings that really matter, and we won't need anything in between. So all this talk of angels, if, if they exist at all, they only exist for people like the Virgin Mary, and they run down real quick, do something, and then leave, and that's all we need to think about them. But for the most part, we don't need to talk about this class of beings at all, and it becomes very weird and uncomfortable when they seem to intrude into our existence. But, of course, the actual religious tradition is chock full of these types of encounters. I mean, when Jesus was reported the first raised from the dead, his disciples are sitting in that room, he shows up out of nowhere, and their first reaction is, ah, it's a ghost, right? Mm Mm-hmm. This is the famed disciples of Jesus, right? Well, of course they would think it was a ghost. Everybody would think it was a ghost because they understood a ghost in exactly the same term as we do. And they immediately put, brought him food to do a little test. <laughs> See, well, 
if he eats, what's going to happen to the food, right? Is it going to go into his body and disappear like we do, in which case he's a physical creature, or is it going to fall on the ground? And when he actually eats it, they're like, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe he's not a ghost after all. And it's a com- it's one of these comic elements in the in the in the Christian tradition, um, but at the same time, it shows that they were very familiar with talking about these classes of beings. So there's these two traditions just make it very hard. It makes it seem like it's ridiculous to talk about uh, paranormal uh, beings or paranormal objects, when in fact there's nothing in the sciences as simply an empirical mode of inquiry that rules out non-physical beings or beings that are physical in a different way that we currently understand. Nor is there anything in the actual religious traditions that suggests that there can't be incorporeal objects, especially when the gods are all incorporeal. Well, it seems like from a, a historical and a philosophical point of view, you, you came into this with a lot of uh, you know knowledge that you had acquired previously. What is your experience in the actual paranormal realm? Have you actually gone out and investigated? Is, is it just something that you've studied from you know, a, a classroom perspective, or have you tried to be hands-on with it? I have not gone off and done any, any um, empirical investigation on my own. I'm, um, I was looking at it much more from the standpoint of what we can think about the problem within the traditional, uh, traditional metaphysical understanding in philosophy. So metaphysicians are interested. Metaphysics is simply the study of what is. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, we ask questions about what does it mean to be human? You know, what, what, what is God? Does he exist? If he is, what is he like? Um, what is it that makes us work? Are we free or are we determined? What is the ultimate order of things in the universe? These are the kinds of questions that metaphysicians traditionally ask. And it seemed to me that there was a class of this class of beings that the medieval talked about in between us and God that begged to be looked at. And so I found out that there was a little grant I could get at my university for what we call a New Dimensions grant, which enables us to do something a little extra and different than you typically do in a course. And so I put this proposal forward, and my chairman found it, found it rather amusing and thought, well, you never know, this could go over. And uh, sure enough, our dean uh, wrote off on the project. So we were able to take a traditional body of knowledge that you would typically see in a metaphysics course in a philosophy department anywhere in the country, and then ask the specific question. All right, what about this gap? Uh, what's, what can we think about philosophically that would help us define the parameters on it? And then I turned to the students and I said, okay, what are the types of questions that you actually have about this? What are the areas that would be worth now empirically investigating? And that's where they came up with the eight or nine projects, and we split them into teams, and they spent a good portion of the semester investigating those particular areas. And is that how the course broke down? It was uh, almost like an independent study where they would go out and learn on their own and then bring back and, and work with the group, or was it uh, was there a lot of lecture involved? Well, there was a great deal of lecture involved throughout. But they reported on their findings as they went along, had private discussions with me, and then reported it to the class, and then reported to the campus this past week. So I'm going to guess that these are upperclassmen. These aren't going to be, you know, first-year freshmen who are, you know, looking to get their feet wet in a college course and say, I think I'm going to go for something that's going to be way over my head right to start with. For the most part, no. There were a couple of exceptions that were surprising. Uh, but... Metaphysics is usually considered an upper-level course, mm-hmm. and it's a great deal of difficulty for most most philosophy students. So it's a pretty serious serious level of uh, scholarship. And um, they uh, took the projects quite quite seriously. 
We are going to talk with the students uh, over the course of the evening. Uh, we've got four of them lined up to talk to us about a variety of different subjects that they studied. We'll also be joined for a few minutes uh, at the beginning of the second hour by Chris Balzano. Uh, everybody who listens to this program knows Chris very well, but uh, I want to basically introduce via phone Chris and Jeff because uh, Chris is actually uh, heavily involved with ghostvillage.com, and they also have a teaching arm of Ghost Village, uh, Jeff Belanger and Chris have put together, where they're trying to basically help further not only the par- the study of the paranormal in the classroom, but ways to use the paranormal to teach other lessons to students as well. So I, I'm going to bring Chris on a little bit later on so that Chris and Jeff can talk to each other and we can hammer this out more. You said something that was fascinating to me, uh, Jeff, when you said empirical sciences are great for things that you can study empirically, and I think that's the, the crux of this, is that we need to understand that we are talking about something that goes beyond hard data and... Discussion like this is the perfect way to learn more. Uh, if you do want to join in the conversation at any point during the night, the phone lines will be open, 508-996-0500, to call toll-free. You can also jump into the chat room on SpookySouthCoast.com. Uh, through the miracle of the Internet, we've actually got it open here in the Spooky Studio, first time ever. <laughs> so we'll be able to interact with you as well in there, and you can email a Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. So a variety of ways to get involved in the discussion tonight. Uh, We're going to learn more about learning about the paranormal when we come back in just a minute here on Spooky South Coast. Spooky South Coast. We are tonight's entertainment. Designed and directed by his red right hand. All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And uh, we are discussing learning about the paranormal with our guest tonight, Dr. Jeffrey Teal of Ashland University. And we're going to talk with some of his students as well about the course that they took uh, this past semester at Ashland University. Just a quick note uh, for those of you who are looking for the recent archives on SpookySouthCoast.com. I've got them uploaded to the iTunes feed, the po- the podcast feed. So wherever you get podcasts, you will find them. Uh, Matt Costa, are they up on the website um, yet? Or? I did not pull my end of the weight. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> you, yeah, I took forever to get those edited that's and uploaded fine. to the Internet, so you'll get them on the archive page. But uh, great programs that we did with uh, Reverend Clarissa Vasquez talking about this very subject, about whether or not the paranormal can be considered a science. Uh, also, we spoke with our, our friend Chris Balzano on one episode about Freddy Krueger and the Boogeyman mythos. And then, of course, EVPs with Mike Markowitz. That was a, a great program in which we played some of his best clips. Uh, so they are all uploaded now to the podcast feed, and they will soon be on the archives at SpookySouthCoast.com. And I promise I will keep better up to date. You know, we asked for donations from our listeners to help keep the program rolling. And part of the deal with that was that I promised we would update the shows you know, every week, and, and I fell behind. But everybody knows, Celtics playoffs, busy time of year for me. So, All right, we, why don't we take this phone call first, and then that'll be easier than uh, trying to drop phones and other things. All right, good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How are you doing? Hi, thank you. I'd like to ask the professor two questions. Sure. One, 
um, of the various uh, phenomena in the paranormal, paranormal from um, telekinesis, clairvoyance, psychic predictions. Uh, what's his um, most con- convincing area in his in his point of view of the evidence, experience, etc.? Which one of the various phenomena is he most impressed by its authenticity and validity? You there, Jeff? Sure. Okay. Do I get both questions or just take them one at a time? Uh, do you want my second question now? Sure, go ahead. My second uh, question is, is there any consensus in the paranormal uh, community as to what type of simple empirical experiment would be most effective in convincing regular sciences of the veracity of uh, paranormal experience? Well, let me take the second one first. That's the difficulty with trying to come up with an experiment is that you can't control the phenomena. The phenomena usually seem to come when we don't expect it. And as a result, it's difficult to set up a prediction. Uh, take, for example, a historical event. Once this occurs, you can't reproduce the effect. And when you're dealing with intentional beings, like a ghost, for example, might well be, uh, you can't control the ghost and ask him to appear at a certain time and then run a battery of tests on him. For some reason, ghosts don't seem to agree to those terms, for whatever reason. So it's very difficult to set up an experiment of that kind when you're dealing with an intentional agent. Which would be easier, telekinesis? Well... Those kinds of cases, I think, would be a lot easier because it doesn't necessarily make reference to an intentional being. It may be a capacity or a power which can be tested. The kind of event that that I've seen, that just from all the evidence that I've seen so far, that seems the most plausible are the remote viewing cases. Hmm. And one of our students did an investigation. You'll be hearing from him a little bit later this evening on those questions. And is that the um, phenomenon that impresses you the most with its validity? It depends on what you mean by validity. I don't know how it works. I'm not sure the remote viewers know how it works. So if part of it, the question is, if you're just talking about the phenomena itself, that the phenomena seems to be real, and there's a higher degree of success with that than mere guessing, um, I, I think that's probably demonstrable. As to its underlying cause, which is what a science usually seeks out, that's another matter. That's well, that's the question. That's the question we need to be asking. So, do you think given the phenomena is given the phenomena seems to be there? Then the question is, how does it work? What's the underlying cause? Knowledge must be one in encompassing, don't you think? Is there any hope that there is any empirical uh, test that would be convincing to those who are not already converted? Um. Only from a phenomenological standpoint, that's what I'm trying to explain. If if one looks at the remote viewing data and realizes that, okay, this seems to enable people to predict and describe events and places for which they have no prior knowledge, and they're able to do it at a higher degree of success than would be for the general public without the training and the special protocols they put into place, then you've got something that you say, okay, I've got a set of data that I can't explain by traditional methods. So what's going on here? What accounts for this? And that would be the, the pr- point at which the, the scientist or the philosopher or any kind of investigator 
we try to find out, seek out the underlying cause. That's what philosophers, metaphys metaphysics is really about, finding underlying causes. And of course, the scientist is doing that empirically in the same way. But you have to agree in the first place that there's a phenomena that is real. And that's what's so difficult in many of these cases, because the phenomena simply get dismissed. When I first reported to some of my philosopher friends about these reports that were coming to me from my students, they basically laughed me out of court. I mean, they were convinced that people, these students had to be insane. It was more likely they were crazy than that what they thought they saw really happened to them. That's but I knew just... these people. They seemed perfectly cogent to me. Mm. <laughs> so... That suggests the question as to whether the psychologists are the, um, you know, the in-between scientists that could be of any aid, like Freud or Jung, etc. And I'll, I'll leave you with that and um, uh, well, listen I think, to what... I think you're right. I mean, when we talk about the sciences, we have to realize it's not just the empirical hard sciences that, that qualify. It's any theoretical inquiry. Mm. And sciences attempt to describe and explain phenomena. Now, a lot of phenomena, our physical phenomena, appeals to, appears, hits us on a, a sensory level. But many people talk about having ghostly encounters, or demonic encounters, for example, and they feel deeply oppressed on a moral or emotional level. So there's no reason to suppose that if you're encountering another person, if it's a human person or a non-human person, that that might have an, emo an emotional impact. And so a psychologist could be very handy, I think, in talking about these kinds of events just as much as a physicist or a biologist. Well, perhaps you don't have enough time, but it'd be fascinating in hearing what you thought Freud and Jung and others discovered that has some legitimacy. But thank you for all your insightful oh, th comments. Thank you, caller. And believe it or not, that's actually something we're going to be talking about coming up on a future show. Great. All right, thanks. Have a good night. All right, well, let's get into the discussion, Jeff, with some of your students. Joining us first is Mike Byrne. And, Mike, you focused on an yeah. area that is uh, very much an area of interest for our science advisor, Matt Moniz. Uh, you focused on alien abductions. What what made you choose that as your area? Um, I guess we, uh, we sort of made a list of all the things up on the board, and it seemed um, one of those really far-out-there sort of things that um, typically – people put in the category of, uh, you know, people out in the middle of nowhere believing in it sort of thing. So that was sort of the inspiration behind it. And when you did decide to focus on this, uh, what, what, one of the questions that I know, Matt Moniz, you had a question about what kind of sources uh, they're yeah, going what, to for information. Yeah, what did you use as your references, reference materials? What we, uh, we tried to do was find, actually... Um, went and tried to find as many books in the first place as we could, and believe it or not, there's, there's very few um, good books that, have, um, that cover the topic well. And then we also tried to um, find as many um, cases that we could that portrayed different um, perspectives that, um, you know, so that we weren't looking at all the same cases. And then some of them we tried to pull from... Um, sites where there were a lot of firm believers in alien abductions. Um, while we tried to find uh, reports that were given to, say, you know, uh, government officials or a uh, police officer, um, typically when these cases come forth to them, they, uh, they pass it along and tell them to go talk to someone else. So, well, What was the most fascinating 
bit of information that you found in researching abduction cases? I think what um, was really interesting was how correlated they were to one another. Um, they all seem to be tied in a lot to um, a distrust in uh, the government, in other people, um, in technology. Um, there's basically three theories, in a sense, we focused on. Um, a realist theory, which was almost a, a psychological perspective of the people who, who believe in these things have some sort of problem. A uh, conspiracy theory where, you know, the government's controlling minds or working with aliens and allowing these things to happen. And then the other was called a New Age um, theory in which people, um, it's almost a, a religious view of alien abductions where they feel chosen. It's not, well, it's scary to them. They feel chosen, and um, it's very similar to um, them spreading the word about impending doom, um, particularly from the dangers of technologies, nuclear annihilation, um, or poisoning the planet with pollutants and things. So, well, Were there any cases that when you heard them, uh, you were kind of convinced that this had to be actual encounters with extraterrestrial beings? Was there anybody's story that was so convincing or any circumstance that was so convincing that it made it definite in your mind? Sadly, no. Um, we were we really tried to find that one case that sort of set it apart, um, was completely different from all the others. The closest we found was um, a lady named Kelly Cahill, um, who lived in Australia, um, in the Dandenong foothills, I believe. And she actually had some physical evidences on her body, um, but the details aren't clear enough, and there wasn't enough, uh, I guess, research done at the time. She goes to the hospital, um, and they tell her, they ask her if she's recently been pregnant or had a um, any kind of gynecological surgery, um, and she hasn't. And then they also find a small um, triangular arthroscopic um, incision uh, just below her belly button. And then she goes back probably three weeks later to be treated for an infection um, in her womb. So that's the closest we've really found of any real physical evidence. Um, a lot of the cases they say, oh, you know, I have, you know, a, an alien computer chip, you know, injected in my arm, and it turns out that it, there's nothing there or that there's nothing extraterrestrial about it. Well, are you, um, did you come across the work of Dr. Roger Lear at all? Yeah, I was going to say Dr. Roger Lear with a collection of over 110 different implants. Never I, I, made. We have, we did not come across, I mean, my, uh, my partner actually did most of the research um, as far as um, looking up the cases, and I did more on the theories covering each of them. What about the so, Betty Hill case, whereas in, you're talking about the amniocentesis or orthoscopic uh, insertion through the navel? That was one of the first cases of such a, such a thing ever happening, and that's in the book Interrupted Journey. I mean, that case goes back almost 50 years. The, the Betty and Barney Hill case, um, we actually did a lot of um, looking into, in a sense, and it, it was one of the first um, 
cases that there are. The problems that we found in that case is that the ways in which they came about um, the stories and, and such were typically through um, hypnosis. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, they came through dreams first. The hypnosis was afterwards, but go ahead. And, and um, in those details, um, you know, when Barney did his, he ended up drawing a sketch of the alien, and the image that he drew is almost an exact replica of a um, the alien from a show called The Bolero Shield. Yep. Um, and and so when those things sort of come up and, and puts that doubting mind, it makes it more difficult or made it more difficult for us to believe those cases. Well, I can tell you, if you're, if you're interested in, in continuing your focus in alien abduction, we can certainly help uh, get you in touch with uh, a few people that might be able to give you some more information. And Matt Moniz will tell you what will happen when you start <laughs> looking yeah. into alien abduction cases. Well, you see, Betty was actually a personal friend of mine. I've, I've known her for years. I actually have her, uh, parts of her dress from that actual abduction case. And he uh, wears them around uh, the studio. Yeah, funny. <laughs> but uh, the case is actually extremely interesting because it d- did leave physical results. And uh, I'm sorry, but imagination and you know hallucination don't change things physically so uh definitely if you if you want to learn a little bit more get in touch with me and i'll uh, i can put you in touch with uh with betty and barney hill's niece uh, Ka- uh betty and barney hill's niece, niece kathleen yeah. martin yep. and uh we can get you in touch with dr roger lear too just if you know for your own knowledge or even if you want to keep pursuing the topic i'm a personal assistant well not assistant but i help out bud hopkins quite regularly i can hook you up with david jacobs yeah, that'd be great. Or you could just leave it alone and not have the black helicopters fly over yeah, your house, really. too. Either yeah, way. Exactly. <laughs> Here's a quote for you, uh, and it I found it extremely true. Uh, my mentor gave it to me 20-something years ago. For every step you take towards the unknown, it takes two towards you. Yeah. So, and it's coming for you. And with that, Mike, we'll say goodnight. <laughs> Sleep tight. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mike, for joining us. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back on the other side, we will talk to Josh Reisner about his work looking into esoteric knowledge and Scientology, uh, the students of Dr. Jeff Teal, who is also with us, learning about the paranormal, and you're learning about it here, too, as you do each and every Saturday night. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. We are talking about Jeff Teal's class, learning about the paranormal at Ashland University, and joining us on the line, we do have uh, Jeff with us uh, through on the phone throughout. And Jeff, feel free to jump in the discussion at any point. But joining us is Josh Reisner, who worked on an area is uh, an area that's something we haven't really touched on this program. Uh, we we've talked about esoteric knowledge quite a bit on this program, Josh, but we've never really delved into the world of Scientology, mainly because Scientologists scare the heck out of me. 
And I hope you're not one, Josh, because I, I would have just insulted you. No, no, I'm not. Okay, good. Not yet. <laughs> uh, they just they just got to get their claws into you, I guess. So, what what, what made yeah. you decide to focus on on this part of the paranormal world? Well, I wish I could say that I had uh, interest before. I I actually didn't show up to class the day that we got the pick, <laughs> and uh, Dr. Teal picked that one for me. So, but I do have an interest. Uh, it ended up at first I was hesitant because naturally skeptical of of uh, their religion or even being called a religion, but. Uh, I found it interesting after I started getting into it, so it worked out well. It, did, it, did it kind of change your perception, your preconceived notion of it going in? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not sure if it did. Uh, um, I, do, I do look at different religions differently now, um, if that's what you're asking. Um, I, I tried to, you know, I really wanted to um, have an open mind and not just, immediately dismiss them, you know, because of the nature of the class that we were taking, you know, it was basically making us do that with everything that we would uh, interact with in our world, you know, um, religious beliefs or just ghosts or whatever. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it maybe maybe changed. <laughs> so um, but. what else besides Scientology in particular, what else did you focus on uh, for your subject matter? Uh, that was basically it. You know, the, the main thing that we, uh, we worked with partners, I don't know mm-hmm. if that was mentioned, but, uh, the main, the main thing that we focused on when we were looking at this, we were kind of like, well, why do people, you know, what is making people believe this? Because if you hear all the stories that are common to hear on, online and things like that, and you hear Tom Cruise talk, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to imagine that people believe, uh, these, these stories. So we kind of started by asking that question, and that kind of led us to, like, esoteric knowledge, uh, um, and where do, where does that knowledge come from, how is it gained, and um, is the source of that knowledge credible? And that's kind of how we, you know, like I guess that's the connection to the paranormal, is we kind of decided that um, maybe there's three possibilities for the source of L. Ron Hubbard's uh, information concerning Scientology, you know, that that it's uh, pure physical, like self-motivated, or it could be either divine or demon uh, revelation, you know, some kind of contact with some other um, sort of being, maybe giving that information, or somehow the, the you know, L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, connecting that, that source somehow. Um, sorry if I'm not answering your question. No, no, so, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the thing that fascinates me about it, though, is it's one of those... Um, I, I don't know. It's kind of like one of those celebrity causes, almost. Where you know, when when these celebrities start attaching themselves to it, a lot of the original meaning can be lost, and it could be just no different than any other religion. But when you start having Tom Cruise and John Travolta and and others being out there as the face of this, then everything that they do as being whacked out celebrities in a whacked out celebrity wor- world is. Uh, put back on Scientology. I mean, Tom Cruise is probably just nuts because we've seen the way that he reacts to things and we've seen the way that he that he uh, kind of caves into the public spotlight sometimes. And it's not fair that we should blame an entire belief system just on the actions of a few individuals. Right, right. You know, however, you know, one of the things that I found most interesting about Scientology is how they are very intentional about keeping their information or their religious beliefs and practices intact or or 
or um, original to the founders' um, original thoughts or discoveries or whatever. I mean, the actual, we found that um, created a, it's called the Scientology Technology Center, and the whole purpose of this center is to make sure that the original doctrine stays true to their, like, to their originator or the discoverer. And so, you know, I understand what you're saying, that they, like, you know, maybe they're giving a bad name to Scientology, but they're one of the religions, it seems, unlike, like, the Christian religion where there's all these different sects and there's all these different, like, uh, you know, beliefs and stuff like that. Scientology has made a, a specific move to try to keep their religion um, in the original state. And I, so, yeah, I'm not sure that these people are crazy and they're making Scientology crazy or Scientology is <laughs> making them crazy, crazy, you know? Sure. Yeah, sure. I'm not sure. Uh, well, I, I think that any religion that is very hard in its belief system and doesn't allow a bit of free will and free thinking within the guidelines of it uh, is, is something that can cause a lot of problems, and that might be what we see with Scientology as well. Yeah, um, Definitely. Well, at the very least, uh, at least it's not going to make you start jumping up and down on couches on Oprah. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And um, uh, did it? My question is: Did it make you enjoy Battlefield Earth any more than you did before? Because pretty horrible movie to begin with. No. <laughs> no, it did not. <laughs> at least in the old days, at least we had the L. Ron Hubbard Dianetics uh, TV commercials <laughs> to try to convert people, and now we have. You know, Tom Cruise and John Travolta. So I guess that's progress. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Josh, the the one question I have, we got about 30 seconds uh, for you now, is uh, where can I send the pamphlet, the information to you? Uh, can we send the Scientologists to your door? And can we uh, basically kidnap you and, and take you on board the mothership? No? Uh, no. All right. Thanks. That's, for why my part- that's why my partner didn't want to show up, though. He's a little worried about them uh, getting us. <laughs> as it as should be. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Spooky South Coast is back. It's Saturday night. I have no date. A two-liter bottle of Shasta and my all-rush mixtape. Let's rock. I can smell your I'm not afraid. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen. All right, welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And we are talking about learning about the paranormal, the paranormal in the classroom. Uh, Matt Moniz, we went to school at different times. Uh, we went to school probably uh, 10, 15 years apart. Yeah. 
And I can tell you that when I was uh, in both high school and college, didn't really have a lot of this stuff talked about. <laughs> and I'm sure even when you were in high school and college, oh, yeah. it, was, it was something that wasn't talked about. However, we both did have the same teacher that- at one point in our in our different uh, academic careers uh, who did allow for this kind of thinking, and uh, Peter Hassenfuss. Yep. Uh, who taught us eighth grade science, albeit at different times. True. Um, might be one of the first people that really planted the seeds in my head to be able to talk about this stuff. Yeah. So uh, it, it's we owe a great great attitude to him. Every time I see him uh, around town, I, I ask him, "Are you going to come on the show? Will you come on the show?" Because I just think it'd be great to have him in here for a night and just share with us, you know, why he was willing to allow us to learn these things but we wouldn't neither one of us would probably be here tonight today if it wasn't for him exactly yeah he encouraged students that wanted to think it didn't matter you know if if you were had thoughts in your head and you wanted to go on and look into something he encouraged that he didn't hold you back he didn't care how wane how wacky or zany it was the fact that you were interested in something meant that you wanted to learn. So he was going to help you along learning it, even if he thought it was crazy. And there were numerous uh, instances where we would go to school, uh, go to the class that particular day, and we we're supposed to be learning about some sort of topic. And instead, uh, we, somebody would bring up the idea of time travel, yep. UFOs, alien visitation, uh, ghosts, any of this stuff. And it would end up taking up the entire class. And he was no more... Uh, knowledgeable about it maybe than a- any other person that we might talk to on this program. It wasn't like he was a, a paranormal investigator. Uh, he certainly was not somebody who made this the primary focus of his life. But as you said, he was open-minded and he was always willing to accept information. And I think that's part of what led it about. And, you know, it almost became a joke where if we, if none of us had studied for a certain test, somebody would bring up the JFK assassination <laughs> because yeah. we knew that would, uh, that would take up almost the entire time. Yeah. How come when Matt Costa talks, he's like the quietest guy in the world, but when we need him to call somebody on the phone over there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. He's setting up everything for us to continue on with our discussion with Dr. Jeff Teal of Ashland University. And uh, Matt, you've got everybody on the phone for us. All right. So let's, uh, Let's dis- continue the discussion with Jeff, and let's also bring in our friend, Chris Balzano. Chris, I was editing some recent shows uh, over the last the last few weeks' worth of shows, and I realized you've been all over this program uh, in the last four to six weeks. So welcome back. Yeah, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of wondering whether you guys are uh, sick of me yet, or at least uh, your listeners are. Well... I don't think they could ever get sick of you. I'm just wondering when we can reach the point. You know, when you get a, a, a when you get a nice new shiny computer and a fast internet connection and all that kind of stuff, we should just bring you on every week as a guest as, as our co-host. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I I have my uh, Spooky South Coast bumper sticker. I write with my Spooky South Coast pen, so I feel like I'm part of the crew. So we might as well make it official sometime and actually uh, make me uh, a a non-in-house member. Well. I- it's kind of paranormal in itself how good those pens have lasted. Those are like four- or five-year-old <laughs> pens at this point. But, Well, Chris, I wanted to, to have you join the discussion tonight because we do have Dr. Jeff Thielon from Ashland University and uh, I'd like you two to meet over the telephone here. And, Chris, I know that you must have tons of questions for a, a professor who is willing to teach this topic in his classroom. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the, the first question I had was how much crossover was there uh, with information in terms of the, the people who were working on remote viewing, speaking with uh, the people who were working on alien abduction, 
to kind of ask uh, and answer, and even even I guess set forth some of those underlining questions. Was it was it a, the kind of collaboration where you were finding common themes in these, and those that became part of the discussion, and maybe even part of the empirical evidence, um, or whether it was just hey, here's this collection of stuff that we have. No, there was some crossover. There was some crossover. Um, but the students came to sometimes contradictory conclusions. Uh, so you heard Mike's evaluation. He was less less than impressed with the um, some of the alien abduction phenomena, um, whereas some you know Douglas, who you'll talk to later, was very impressed with the remote viewing evidence. There was a lot of interesting crossover metaphysically between the um, people that researched apparitions and the people that researched uh, the demonic and exorcism. Um, so. There was some cross-conversation, for sure. Uh, but they didn't all agree with each other. It was a university environment, and so we're used to having quite quite a divergence of viewpoint. Well, I know that a lot of times in disbelief it's, you know, well, I don't believe in this, and so therefore how could I possibly believe in that? So I don't believe in in demons, so how could I ever possibly believe in, in ghosts? Which, to me, seems illogical, but... Was there any of that kind of thing where because, or, or do you feel that there could be, um, because one thing falls in line, for example, because remote viewing falls in line, well, that says perhaps something about connectedness or psychic ability. Does that then kind of cross over to, well, if you can do that, then you can predict the future or you can, you know, communicate with people who are past? As a scientist, right. there, are, there are linchpins. Um, what you might call evidentiary linchpins that tend to blow the doors open. And certain kind of phenomena impress some people and don't impress others. And the remote viewing uh, data really grabbed the attention of my students, for sure. In part because it was an operational program uh, run, you know, through the DIA and the CIA. And it's one thing for the CIA to conduct an investigative project, but to make it operational... Right. It shows they have to have some level of confidence in the technology. And then that just raises the question, okay, well, if that's true, how does this work? And if this works, then what else might be possible? Um, right. The people that worked on the some of the ghosts and the demonic, for the same reason, if you have one kind of, of an intentional agent who's incorporeal, right, and if it's allegedly a demon, well, maybe there's the possibility that another one's a ghost. Or if you have a ghost, maybe there are other kinds. And, you know... If they're agents, then you have to raise the questions of morality. What are their intentions, right? In the esoteric knowledge case that uh, Josh was just talking about, he was talking about the sources. You know, if you suddenly get information in your mind or someone appears to you and gives you a bunch of information, you still have to ask the question, what's the motive? Why am I being told this? Is this really reliable? Um, so those are some of the kinds of questions that, that get asked. But it's definitely the case that once the door gets pushed open a little ways, um, a lot of things become possible, at least, if not plausible, that before you wouldn't have given a serious a serious look. And were, were some of the other religions kind of explored other than Scientology, or was it thought of, well, the miracle or control basis of Scientology are too far in the past for us to, to conduct any uh, research on it? Uh, you, that, I'm sorry, I broke up a little bit. You said the miraculous basis for... Yeah, no, in other words, if you, if you did the Scientology, and, and that was you know one group's project, one person's project, you have to take a look at other uh, religious aspects. Uh, right. You know, 
Right. For example, well, I mean, Josh, you touched upon demons, but... Right. Josh did did that, actually. He um, talked about an essay written by a, a very famous philosopher named John Locke, who we're more familiar with because of his work in political theory. But he actually wrote quite a bit on the difference between what he calls real faith and contrasting that with something he calls enthusiasm. Enthusiasm is what is commonly, what Locke calls enthusiasm is what people commonly call faith today, which is kind of uh, just believing something without any good reason at all. Um, perhaps a religious object or some sort of special information that happens to come into your head and just concluding that because you feel it strongly, that somehow that makes it um, a divine a divine or a reliable source. And Locke can contrast that with faith, um, which he thinks has to be justified in the sense that whoever's giving you the information has to have some kind of bona fides. You may not be able to confirm the information directly, but the person who's giving it, you ought to have some reason to make it plausible for you to believe them. And that's why the question of source became so important. Now, Josh did did make the connection between um, the question of the origins, if there's esoteric knowledge in Scientology, what is its original basis, and make the comparison to all religions that have any kind of revelatory elements to them, including the major traditions in the United States. Christianity claims to have all sorts of special knowledge. Now, it's not given to a select few, right? Christian, Christian knowledge is meant for all. So there's a, that's a big difference. But as to the question of source, right? I mean, if Jesus is God, that's obviously a non, not exactly a traditional source of information. <laughs> and, of course, you know, we find in the Christian story all sorts of events that occur of a supernatural nature to try to justify belief in a supernatural cause. So there's a connection in the Christian tradition between revelation and evidence. And that was one of the things that Josh explored, trying to ask the question, how do we assess any of these claims? What would count as evidence? What would it look like? So, uh, Chris, when we've discussed in the past the the need to have the paranormal kind of put into a a curriculum basis, and I know that you and and Jeff Belandra are working on a number of things for your your education site at ghostvillage.com, but... It's almost like we knew that if it was going to happen, it wouldn't happen in an, an empirical science format, that it wouldn't be something that was going to be taught as a hard science. It would have to be taught through philosophy, which I think is uh, the better avenue for it because it's so theoretical in basis. But you also take a different approach, Chris, as a teacher, to utilizing the paranormal in the classroom. You don't always want to teach the paranormal, but you'll use it to teach other things as well, which I think is a, a fascinating approach. Yeah, it's funny, um, you know, when I, I had texted you about some uh, a potential for an upcoming show, and I was watching a documentary on uh, the Salem Witch Trials, because I'm getting into the Crucible, um, you know, I've got sophomores, and so I'm like, all right, rest of the year, we're getting into the Crucible, and I started the documentary, and of course, my defiant teenagers, half of them raised their hand and said, We've seen this before. And I'm like, well, you've, you've read a crucible before? Or you've, they're like, no, 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 no. We've studied it in biology class and we started talking about, you know, uh, you know, physiological changes and, you know, the fact that it might have been that, uh, weed and stuff like that that caused it. So we watched this. And I was like, oh, well, that's, that's kind of cool. Like, I like that teacher. I wish I had, uh, <laughs> I wish I knew who that teacher was. And then maybe five minutes later, it kicked in some other people's brains and it was, they raised their hand and was like, we've seen this before. And I said, well, were you in the biology class? And they said, no, we saw this in our history class when they were trying to explain Puritans and Puritanical beliefs in colonial America. 
And so it really kind of under, and I sat back and kind of, you know, laughed at the whole thing, but it underlined this, this, um, these questions, these philosophical kind of things that are going around, uh, these, this quest for truth kind of remains in us because these things are not able to be, uh, empirically proven. They're not able to always get our hands around them. And so it, 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 it leaves a question in our mind. Uh, and I've been spending, you know, my, at least the past 10 years as an educator, uh, <laughs> manipulating that into, you know, teaching students all kinds of things. Um, and so one of the aspects that I've been working on, and this is, te- you know, technically goes village for kids, is this ghost in the classroom uh, idea, which, of course, you know, extends out to legends, extends out to uh, urban legends and things like that, which is, you know, there's such a high interest level in this, uh, especially with the youth, especially with teenagers, especially it's, it would seem for, you know, teenagers who are, uh, not traditional students who, who struggle in other aspects of academic careers. That you know, if we can, if I can use that and get them interested in something enough to pay attention to the rest of the stuff I have to say, their level of success goes way up. Um, right. And so that's, that's and Chris, that's very Socratic, right? I mean, the Socratic method is starting where people are and and engaging them with questions. You can teach with anything, anything at all, uh, because every, all of the fundamental questions that are important to human beings get inspired by any kind of inquiry. Um, you can talk about the paranormal, you can talk about dolphins, you can talk about time travel, and before you know it, you're talking about essential human questions of meaning and value, things that really matter. And philosophy is particularly suited to unifying the disciplines. One of the problems we have in academia is that phenomena get studied only from within a single discipline, and the disciplines don't communicate very effectively to one another. But what you just talked about was something you talked. You linked legends and ghosts. Well, you know, think about the different areas within academia that study those differences, right? Legends usually fall into the class of history and/or literature, right? History and literary people don't even talk very much. Ghosts obviously fall into the class of, you know, pretty, you know, very obviously religious objects, especially if you're thinking of them as people that have gone on past into death. Um, so there, you have the religion department involved. If the ghost manifests in any kind of energy or phenomenological way, then you have people from the physical sciences that would be involved. But that's the difficulty in academia. We have all these different disciplines that need to come together to study a phenomena. Uh, that's really a deeply human phenomena. Right. It's funny when I when I um, when I talk to people and they say, you know, the paranormal. And I've said this on the show before. When the paranormal needs to be studied scientifically. I say. We're really just looking at one narrow brand of science if you're saying, you know, EVPs or, or the energy study and the energy capture is where you're going. What about anthropology? What about psychology? Those are sciences as well. Um, Correct. And so it's, it's exactly what you're saying, that that broad approach. And, of course, you know, my students just like the wow factor of it. They don't realize that I'm using that method to kind of be, now how do we read this? What is the main idea of this story? What are the common elements of these stories that could potentially be Say something about society, or say something about, um, you know, even even getting your your hands dirty, wanting to read it. And it's funny because, you know, I have the the books that are required for me to have force these kids to read, and I have a bookcase of, uh, you know, my books, and they're going over to my books, and I'm using the same lesson plan with the required books as I am with the, you know, Balsamo Paranormal books, and hopefully getting the same work done. So. Yes, all teaching is a species of trickery because we have to trick them <laughs> right, to right, learn. Right. <laughs> and as they grow older, they finally realize that if they had just paid attention to what they always wanted to know, right, 
originally, then we could have learned that way. Well, I'll, I'll put a twist on my, my usual catchphrase. Uh, come for the ghosts, stay for the education. That's right, exactly. All right, Chris, well, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to talk to some more of the students, and uh, I hope that uh, somewhere down the line you and, and Dr. Teal can hook up and, and we can get something up on Ghost Village uh, about the course that they offered. Thank you very much, and I hope that I wish that I had uh, students who were, who were as motivated as his seemed to be. So, <laughs> thank hope, you very much. I also very hope much. your students aren't listening tonight because uh, <laughs> they'll be upset with you come Monday. I'm, I'm almost positive they're not, but have a wonderful night, guys. Right, thank night, you very Chris. much. Good night. Bye. All right, we are going to take a break. Uh, we're going to talk to some more of Dr. Teal's students. We're going to talk to Sarah, who studied uh, near-death experiences, and uh, we'll also talk to Douglas Jessup, and he looked into remote viewing. Uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes. If you'd like to call up and share any thoughts, give us a call, 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. You can email us, SpookyCrew, at SpookySouthCoast.com, and it looks like Craig's got quite the chat going on and the chat room that he runs on his site, which you can get to by going through to SpookySouthCoast.com and clicking on the chat tab. All right, we'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. You know, we've been talking about uh, the idea of teaching the paranormal tonight, and we've been mentioning the hard sciences, the empirical sciences. And uh, one of the fascinating new sciences that are out there is the idea of genetic manipulation. And uh, I don't know, is this a documentary? <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> a new movie coming out called Splice. Uh, superstar genetic engineers Clive, who is played by Oscar winner Adrian Brody, and Elsa, played by Sarah Polly, specialize in splicing together DNA from different animals to create incredible new hybrids. Now they want to use human DNA in a hybrid that could revolutionize science and medicine. But when the pharmaceutical company that funds their research forbids it, Clive and Elsa secretly conduct their own experiments, and the result is Dren, an amazing, strangely beautiful creature that exhibits uncommon intelligence and an array of unexpected physical developments. And though at first Dren exceeds their wildest dreams, she begins to grow and learn at an accelerated rate and threatens to become their worst nightmare. The film Splice will be released on June 4th, 2010, but we have a whole stack of special passes to a sneak screening this Monday night, May 10th at 9 p.m. at the AMC Lowe's in Boston. Uh, each pass will admit one. We've got a whole bunch of them to give away. So if anybody would like to win these tickets, you can come on by the studio uh, before the show is over, and we'll give them to you. And uh, let us know how many you need. We'll give you the passes. You can go see the movie for free on us Monday night before it's out in theaters. And uh, we'll also leave some here at the studio. And you can pick them up Monday, anytime between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. But, again, the show is this Monday at 9 p.m., at the AMC Lowe's in Boston. So if you want to see a movie for free on us, then come on by and get some passes. And our friends, uh, our thanks to the uh, producers of the film as well uh, for getting this to us. I mean, Warner Brothers, they've, they've been great about helping us uh, promote a lot of these films, and we look forward to being able to have giveaways like this all the time. So just a little thank you to our audience for listening to the show and for being loyal supporters of what we do here. 
All right. Well, we are talking about teaching the paranormal with Dr. Jeff Teal of Ashland University, and we've been discussing with a lot of his students uh, what they've been learning. And, and Jeff, one question I do have is, will the course be offered again? Was this a one-time only thing, or have you kind of convinced the department that this is something that will draw a lot of interest? Well, I haven't convinced my department uh, yet, <laughs> but uh, I've certainly been convinced. Um, a lot of times you'll try something out as a small segment of a course and then realize the potential. There's so much information to explore. We were only able to look at a fraction of what's available. Um, I think you could easily do a, a full course um, covering all sorts of par- paranormal phenomena and looking at it from within the traditional philosophical disciplines as well as um, thinking about it from a the spectrum of all the disciplines I think, relating to human knowledge. I think the crux of it is, though, uh, you know, if it eventually can get to the point where it has value as a degreed program, then maybe we can uh, look at the possibilities of creating degreed programs in the paranormal. But until there's, you know, a, an end result from having said degree, I, I think that there's there's the problem, and basically, as we always say, there's no money in the paranormal. Nobody wants to, you know, dedicate their life to it in terms of drawing a paycheck, uh, unless they're one of these fortunate few who are, you know, writers or speakers or, uh, I don't know, reality TV show <laughs> stars. Yeah, well, money money isn't really the test. There's no money in poetry either, but literature departments obviously devote a great deal of attention to poetry because of its connection to human experience and human meaning. So the real issue is what would account for the paranormal to be considered a science. It's one thing to have a course that investigates certain elements within the paranormal. It's another thing to think about it as an entire degree program. Then it would have to be fully thought out as to what kind of a science it is, what are the conditions on it, and it would require wide acceptance. Could it work? So I think we're a long way from. I think we're quite a long way from getting quite to that point. Could it work that was not having to be a hard science and, and being more of a philosophical approach? I mean, even as a historical yeah. emphasis, just the history. I mean, I, I've taught a course myself in the history of the paranormal, and to me that's uh, even more fascinating than learning about the uh, quote-unquote scientific devices that we can put to use out in the field. Yes, you could study it from a historical standpoint. You could look at ancient gods and goddesses. You could look at the witch trials. You could look at the Oracle of Delphi. <clears throat> you could look at all these types of factors. You could approach it from a literary standpoint, uh, the way we were just hearing about looking at legends. Uh, you could look at it from within religion, looking at ghosts, ghosts, and demons, and these types of types of beings. There's a lot of different approaches you could take. But see, that's that, and that's what makes it strange to think of a degree just in the paranormal. Mm-hmm. It sounds rather like you would apply the sciences that already and the arts that already exist. See, that is another facet of human experience. It does. But it has to be recognized more widely as a facet of human experience for that to happen. Well, uh, at least here we recognize it, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, well, yeah, we have a but, but you, you understand what I mean, that it's too many people have the giggle factor exactly. when, this, when this topic comes up, and um, that's, part of, that's part of the issue. Now, Jeff, am I not correct in... Uh, the statement that it is not a subject that has actually really been looked at by any sciences, whether it be humanities such as yours or hard sciences like I, I, I'm in? I, I, that has never, I don't think it's never been looked at. I mean, seriously, with any serious look. Can you quote me any, any particular studies? That's, that's the key, yeah. Yeah. It's, the financial backing aspect of it is is the big problem. 
Well, that's what I'm saying. It's never really, really been looked at. It's the um, the 800-pound gorilla sitting in the room that nobody talks about. It's the bastard child that's in the closet. Nobody, the paranormal has never really been studied in any credible in any credible means. Well, I think Douglas will take that up when he comes on talking about remote viewing, because there was some serious research that launched the CIA's interest in the first place. Um, so there have been, there definitely have been studies. I mean, if you're talking about an entire full-on research program where, like, a major research university devotes considerable resources to this topic, um, then no, probably you're right. Yeah. They've spent more money trying to debunk it. Correct. Than they have. Uh... <laughs> that might be true. Well, before we, uh, and I know we got Sarah on the line, but before we uh, get to her, we do have a caller that's uh, called in, so let's take that call. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with Dr. Jeff Teal. How are you doing? Hi, guys. Hi, doctor. Um, I, I was just, I was listening, and you're right. Paranormal does have many avenues that can be explore, explored, both like historically, philosophically. But um, it's all basically a matter of faith. You talk about Scientology and Tom Cruise and so forth. Do you not have faith, like, in the, your own, the eternal validity of your own soul, your essence, spirit, what you want to call it? You must recognize your connection to the only thing that's greater than yourself. When you look up at a night sky, you must recognize your connection. I mean, faith, it's like, no matter what it is, whether it's religious, whether it's political, it's like, you know, prove God's existence. Well, you know, prove your mother. You love her. Prove you love your father. You can't prove it. You either know it or you don't know it. Paranormal, paranormal, it's just purposely being aware. I think scientists know it. Doctors know it. They recognize miracles. You could remember your dreams, probably the closest to reality you'll ever get. If you leave your mind open, so much will drop into it. You talk about empirical evidence. Let's face it. We don't know. We know this. We know as many people as there are in this world. That's how many worlds there are. There's not just one. There's, you know, what reality, imaginary, you could just, like, put the same thing on both lists. Um, you just have to be aware. There, you know, there are, there are worlds that we probably aren't aware of. There's plenty of inexplicable things going on scientifically as well as you know, it's like you know, you can tell. Everything's open for rebuttal. Most truths are open for rebuttal. Or uh, so they say, just be aware. And um, without getting into it, I don't care whether it's um, extraterrestrials that people think are dimensional. I don't care what it is. But there are certainly many inexplicable things. And not everyone is just a nut that lies and says that they've seen something or they know something. You either know yeah. or you don't. The nuts, the nuts are the ones that get to get the job hosting the radio shows talking about it. <laughs> well, what are you, what are you trying to tell me on nuts? I listen to you. I no, know I'm that. Saying, no, I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying. That, I really uh, like your show. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I really, really we are, do. We are on work release from the institution, though. I, I do have to, in the interest of full disclosure. No, but I mean, you must be. Oh, as, as, I'm up for a low myself. <laughs> as, as somebody who who is uh, a strong believer in this, though, you must be glad to see that oh, there is I'm a university. I'm not a strong believer in anything. No, but a strong, a strong. You, it's not a matter of belief. You understand? I, there are. It's not. I, I. It's like I believe in myself. I believe. Look, God loves him some Christine. Christine loves her some God. For lack of a better word, whatever. 
for power. But believe me, we're all part of it. Well, we all have God in us. We've been talking to you for a number of years, and, and you must be glad that there is an academic institution that's willing to allow this kind of thinking. Well, yes, you. I am, because I was listening to the professor, and I heard him when he was when he was saying how many avenues there are to explore. And like I say, I reiterate, there's so many inexplicable things throughout time. There are so many things, just for no other reason. University, that's what university is. It's to, like, open your mind to things, to make, to make, to make you provoke thought. Because mm-hmm. really think about, like, you know, everything isn't just, like, um, black and white. It's like it, there, there are many things. Nobody is so hot that they know, you know, the whole real deal and so forth. But there are certain things that you can trust, and, and each of us know that in ourselves, and I don't care whether you're black, white, pink, chink, I don't care if you're Muslim, I don't care if you're you're Catholic or Judaism or um, Hindu, anything, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. We all know that there is a certain thread that runs through everything. There is a power that runs through everything, and each one of us has. Nobody can, like, um, tell you, who's going to tell me God? (laughs) It's like, I know me some God, you know? For real, and so do you. And and God, you know, paranormal kind of pigeonholes it to say, oh, it's a paranormal course. I'm sure it's interesting that it explores many things and 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 and, uh, and questions, you know, so people can question themselves. I mean, look, like I said, you know, that's how many worlds there are. Not one for as many people as there are. That's how many worlds there are, and a lot of others. Right. And to deny them, you've got to be a damn fool. There you go. All right, well, thank you for, for calling in. We're going to move on. We're going to talk to two more students before the night is out. We thank you for calling in and sharing. Peace. All right, yeah, and with you as well. All right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely uh, I, I went through this very discussion just today, Jeff, with a couple of high school students that I work with at my day job, talking to them about different aspects of history. And, you know, they kind of just know what's been streamlined into the high school curriculum. I start bringing up some of the topics that we talk about here, about, like, the ancient astronaut theory and, you know, why do different cultures on different parts of the world build pyramids like we were talking about last week. And it's just, to them, it's fascinating. And I say, well, wait till you get to college. It's really going to open your mind up a lot different than what they've been teaching you in high school. There are a lot of differences. Um the high school curriculum is very small. It's only a four-year program, mm-hmm. and it's pretty it's it's pretty much set and established. Um, you look a lot of a lot of the elements that are taught historically, for example, about the American Revolution or the war between the states. A lot of these things um, end up being pushed from a certain perspective. Yeah, it's very and it's very right. And the you know your your friend was talking about the lesson plan that has to be followed. Uh, for the high schools, it's much it's much more structured. In the colleges, there's a, it's a much freer kind of inquiry, and uh, you can ask any question. I, I can tell you that uh, I've been watching America: The Story of Us on the History Channel, and I've actually been yelling at it uh, about <laughs> so many spots in history that it's glanced over. <laughs> but that could be a whole separate show with a, a separate right. separate topic. Well, we are talking about teaching the paranormal, and, and Dr. Jeff Teal has been teaching a course at Ashland University this past semester, and one of the students is Sarah Delaney, uh, and she's going to join us now to talk about what she focused on, uh, and that was near-death experiences, and, and hopefully you didn't have any of those uh, in the course of doing this research, Sarah. <laughs> no, no. As far as I know, we didn't. You never know, though, when it, com- when it comes time for the final. Uh, you're you're looking for that silver string and hoping to pull yourself back down to earth. 
That very well could be. I know perhaps many students on campus came came pretty close. Well, we were talking earlier, and, and uh, you did have kind of a, a an interest in in near death experiences uh, because of the work of a family member. Yes, actually, um, my mom is a hospice nurse, and so she's at the bedside when people are dying, and um, she's she's recounted over the years. Um, I think she's been a nurse for about eighteen years now, and she's recounted amazing stories about people reaching out for family members, people talking to family members, and. So that was that was an avenue I definitely thought connected, although maybe not directly, but it, it, it's in the same vein. And what did you find in your research about these near-death experiences? Because I know people who have researched these uh, for many years and are still scratching their heads uh, about what's going on. Well, um, my partner and I, Cara, we, we really try to go in this with a, an open mind. And so I uh, personally, I was biased against it, and I figured that they weren't real. They were probably something um, within the brain, the dying brain or something like that. But we found a case study, um, Pam Reynolds, actually. She, she had a near-death experience, and it was so incredibly clear, and so it was incredible how all the blood was out of her brain. Um, she had no brainwave activity, no brainstem activity. And it blew me away, the um, the things she could recall going on in the operating room while she was, you know, um, floating out of her body is what she said. And there were, there were just so many instances where she had evidence that she would have no other way of knowing and so many clear ideas about the afterlife and um, so many philosophical ideas, actually, that not many people would know, even, even people who um, practice some sort of religion. It was just very very deep, a deep understanding. Well, one of the questions I've always had about near-death experiences, and, and maybe you can answer this, maybe it came across in your research, maybe not, is how much of what people experience in these NDEs are the result of what they know, you know, in life? How much of it is a, you know, they've heard that when you die, you see the light at the end of the tunnel, your loved ones come to greet you. Is this a, a cultural thing? Are there cultures where they don't necessarily have the same belief systems as us, but they still report the same thing? Well, um, according to the the sources are a little mixed on it. Some say that um, different cultures have different ideas and, and therefore have different NDEs. But the more, I, I guess, trustworthy sources that we found said that they're, they're the same across cultures. Um, so, like, psychological journals we looked at and things like that, whereas websites came up as summer the same, but amongst cultures, they're different. But by and large, what we found in the more veridical sources that we found said that they were pretty much the same throughout all cultures. Jeff, I have to commend you as a, as a teacher, as a professor, because you just had a student that said she didn't rely on what she read on the Internet. <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Bravo. I'm taking it, Sarah, that you're not one that just goes and downloads uh, research papers already completed. <laughs> from you know, um, I think going to college, you really have to <laughs> you really have to leave that stuff aside at high school. There you go. Um, that's just not what we do in college, or at least I hope not. Spoken like a true student who is footing the entire bill herself for her tuition. <laughs> <laughs> Show well, me. <laughs> well, so now, uh, have you become convinced that near-death experiences are valid windows into the afterlife? I mean, how much of it is our beginnings of processing the afterlife, and how much of it is, 
you know, heaven? You know, I, I'm not I'm not certain. I would say that I'm more likely to believe that they're real at this moment, but they're I mean the extent of our understanding of even the human mind is is very limited. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, the one case study that we read, we we read many of them, and many were impressive, like a blind woman who had been congenitally blind. Um, she reported seeing things for the first time ever. Um, and the story that we read about Pam Reynolds, like I said, she was in a clinical setting, no brainwave activity, nothing like that. And so I really don't know how the human mind works completely, and I don't think anyone does, but it really just seems very unlikely that that she could have made these things up. So I am I'm more convinced, definitely. The one thing that I've uh, made it kind of akin to in my mind is almost like when you're shutting off a computer and it goes to these different stages where, you know, it shuts down the different programs and then, it you know, it downloads any final updates and you have to go through this long process of waiting for it to eventually reach the point where it shuts down. And sometimes you hit restart and it goes through all that and then reboots itself after that. So I think almost the brain might work in a similar fashion, and unless somebody's pulling the plug completely, you might get that rebooting. You know, I'm not sure. Just because they they describe a reality that seems to be more real mm-hmm. than, the, than the one that we're in now, and so in such a dreamlike state, in such a state where your mind is not working very well or not working to full capacity, I really don't understand how you would make up this kind of imagery that seems so real. These people um, talk about having experiences or their senses, but they're not their senses. They are things they would trust more than their senses. It, it, and so, It's not like we can throw away uh, the experiences of people who have these NDEs, like when they're in a car accident or you know, when they're in a situation where they're not necessarily hooked up to monitors and, and we know about their brainwave situation or their vital scans, but... When you do have the correlation of people who are having these experiences and they are clinically dead, uh, then, I mean, to me, that's proof enough. That I really don't know how I would discount that personally. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Right, yeah. To, to jump in, Tim, uh, there's two elements of the near-death experience, right? One is the, the elements that seem out of body. Mm-hmm. And the other are the the light and the and the tunnel and the family and the loved ones. And you might use the reboot theory to explain the the light and the tunnel. Um, although, as Sarah points out, it's more real there for those people than it would be in no, in uh, even dream or normal experience. But the awareness of information that you could only possess if you had actually left left the operating room, and it's clear that you were on the table the entire time, and it's pictorial knowledge. It's very difficult to understand how someone could come by that, even if their brainwaves were still operating. And and when you hear people who have had these experiences and they they describe it crystal clear, I think not only is it a shock to them and, and and a convincing factor for them, but the people who are hearing about it, you know, it probably changes their life. I can't imagine how many doctors have had this described to them and kind of just had to eventually accept it as fact because it happens so often. And, yeah, that's true. I mean, there have been studies done and um, doctors wanting to find out how many, uh, especially cardiologists, wanting to find out how many of their patients have had near-death experiences, and it's astounding. It truly is. And the the ability of these people to, like Dr. Teal said, uh, account for things and recount things that they would have no knowledge of otherwise. 
conversations. There have been people in operations um, recounting whole conversations that either nurses or doctors had. Well, Sarah, we thank you very much for joining us and discussing this with us. Um, I hope you won't take this the wrong way when I say I hope that you never have to have one of these near-death experiences. No, I appreciate that. (laughs) Because that means that you have been out of harm's way. But, uh, you know, hopefully uh, it's something that – it sounds like it's something that you're very interested in continuing to pursue. And uh, we we would certainly like to hear of any good case studies that come across your way, and and maybe we can do a future show on it. Certainly. I would – I'd really like to do that. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. We will be right back with our final student that will be joining us. Douglas Jessup will be talking with us about remote viewing. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. All right. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here. These little these headphones are a little weird. Matt Costa, the silent assassin, is to my right. Matt Moniz, our science advisor, is to my left. And we are talking about Teaching the Paranormal with Dr. Jeff Teal of Ashland University. And joining us on the line is Douglas Jessup, who we've been talking, been making reference all night to remote viewing being one of the most uh, interesting aspects of what the students studied and definitely one of the easiest uh, for people to accept as being real, probably because, as, as Dr. Teal mentioned earlier, the CIA did have a program uh, that was very, very good utilization of remote viewing skills, I would say. Uh, during that time, we talked about it with Jim Mars, uh, the psychic spies. But uh, Doug, one question I have for you is, if you kind of worry about who's watching you now, <laughs> you know, whose radar have you put yourself on now by looking into remote viewing? You know, it's an interesting question. I honestly don't think you know too many people care that much. I mean, if there's schools where they're teaching this, my hope is that they go for those people before they would me. So. If they begin to disappear off the radar, then I'll, you know, perk up and skip the country or whatever comes first. (laughs) There you go. So uh, now, why did you choose this area of study for your focus? Uh, I've always had an interest in military matters. And unlike a lot of the other stuff that we talked about, you know, exorcisms and that sort of thing, that is still really interesting. You know, even that the Soviet Union and CIA both looked heavily into this, I was a lot more interested in it. And it sort of had a bit more of the science to it that I could get into more. So that caught my attention the most in the fact that there was, like, physical evidence of the program going on and they actually got results as opposed to having, you know, to talk about metaphysics and what-if scenarios. There's actual, you know, depictions, drawings, and data saying, hey, this worked, you know. So it was neat to build a start with a basis like that. And just the history behind it really caught my attention, too. Was it, was it one of those things, too, where it was, uh, I, I mean, I suppose when you look at the, the fact that there's been private citizens who have taught this. There have been instances of the government utilizing soldiers for it. Uh, and private citizens. Yes. I mean, so, I mean, there's there's enough wealth of knowledge out there uh, that you can kind of look at all the case studies and see if there is uh, common threads amongst these experiences. At, at what point do you make the assumption that this went from being a mental ability to being a weapon? I mean, uh, I personally think that, you know, using it for spying is one thing, but at one point can we use it ourselves against one another? At what point does it get dangerous to have this ability? Well, I mean, spying alone already has its own dangers to it, but I think really for, like, weapons usage, you know, depending on how far you think you can go with it, you know, there's the supposed instances where the Soviets had people that were able to focus and throw off chess players, all sorts of great stuff like that. That's an interesting potential for a weapon, 
I myself, if I was a military tactician, though, I wouldn't be focusing so much on how to mess with somebody's mind as in, like, try to influence their decisions as much as I just, you know, use it more or less how originally it was being planned for to figure out, okay, they have missiles in locations X, Y, and Z. They plan to move them at this time. And more or less, you know, I wouldn't keep that secret, though. I'd tell the enemy flat out, hey, by the way, uh, we have the capability of finding out all your little detailed secrets, so you have two options. We can go to war and have an advantage that you could never even believe, or, you know, you could give in to whatever demand is necessary and more or less use it as a tool of coercion as opposed to one that would be, you know, strictly trying to influence, you know, whatever leader of a nation there is. Because I don't really, I don't think that any research really even remotely touched the ability to have direct mind control or really the closest the Soviets got, like I said, was the ability to just really irritate somebody and really make them upset. Well, they could, but they not could implant visions into other people's minds. They were able to achieve that ability. Yeah, they could do that, but the full-blown control, like as into the extent of, you know, being able to manipulate a person fine-tunely, something you would need, at least in my opinion, to influence a nation on a major level, that, you know, never really hit. Now, not to say that couldn't happen, but it, it seems like the other uses of it would be, you know, better spent time-wise, you know. So you're not going to start learning to do it on your own? I mean, I'd be interested in learning it. It's something that I wouldn't mind looking into for myself, personally. Like, you know, one of these schools, you know, I, when I was doing my research, I was looking at the cost of them and that, and they're not ungodly or anything. So, I mean, it's the time that it comes to actually have, you know, some spare time, in which college is pretty thoroughly preventing, I would not mind looking into it. I was going to say, when you said that, Ed Dame's ears perked up. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so uh, expect an email from him relatively soon. All right, guys, we are up against the clock. We want to thank you for joining us. Uh, Dr. Teal, uh, hopefully we can have you back on in the future, and, and you'll be offering this course again. But if not, we'd certainly like to have you back to talk about a lot of different philosophical uh, discussions that we've wanted to have here for a long time. Been a pleasure. Thank All you. Right. Thank you so much for not only joining us, but also for opening up some students' minds to the paranormal. Uh, next week, we will be back uh, after the Red Sox. We'll be having some sort of show, depending on how much time is left. So stay tuned to SpookySouthCoast.com, soon to be completely updated with all the archives, including tonight's program. Uh, stay spooktacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not yeah, fiction. That was, uh, Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again.